Ten Commandments is probably the commandment that we as Americans break most often. In fact, I would argue that our economy is built on the fact that we break the last commandment uh, so often. The last commandment of the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what the last commandment is of the Ten Commandments? Let's say it together. Thou shalt not covet. When I see my neighbor driving the latest car or using the latest technological gadget, I can easily covet if I'm not careful. I can want what they have. In fact, the reason that I have an iPhone today is because I had a pastor friend who had an iPhone. And when I saw all that the iPhone could do, I said, man, it's time to get rid of my flip phone. I've got to get an iPhone. Then, about a couple years later, I saw Ross Clopton speaking into his iPhone, talking to Siri, asking for directions to a particular restaurant, and the phone talked back. Siri told him where to go, and I said, man, I've got to get an iPhone 4S. So now I have an iPhone 4S today. Admittedly, I don't know all that it can do, but I certainly am glad I can talk to Siri when I need help. So much of our consumerist culture today is built on covenant, isn't it? We see what someone else has, and we want it. In fact, the underlying law of economics is that human wants are unlimited, but we have limited resources. Coveting becomes a real issue in our lives when we want something that we can't have, or it seems unfair to us that someone has what we don't. This past week, the Emerald Globe News actually ran a cover story that listed the 132 public service employees in Potter and Randall County who make over $100,000 a year. These salaries uh, represent... Uh, uh, put them in the top 20% of salaries in the Potter and Randall County. But as I read what they did, it seemed to me like they probably should have a salary that's in the top 20% of Potter and Randall County. I mean, don't we want the best city managers, college presidents, school district administrators, principals, and judges we can afford? However, if you go to the webpage of the Amarillo Globe News and you read the comments some people have made in response to this story, you can see that many people feel that these folks are overpaid. There's a spirit of of sinful envy that quickly permeates the air when salaries are made public, aren't there? That's why it's so good not to talk about salaries in your business or among your friends because inevitably, someone's going to feel like they're not getting what they deserve. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like you deserve more? If so-and-so is making X, then... Well, amount of dollars, then I I should be making that kind of money. Or or if so-and-so is going on a lavish vacation, I should be able to go on such a lavish vacation or drive a particular car or use a particular type of gadget, shouldn't I? I mean, we all work hard, right? So we feel like we should make as much as so-and-so, right? What are we to do when we feel ourselves becoming envious of others? When we catch ourselves coveting what others have? What can we do to avoid the sin of coveting? Well, to find out, open your Bibles to Psalm 73. It may be found on page 616 of your pew Bible, Psalm 73, beginning at verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. 
They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like the beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom 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 have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, please speak through me that the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your Son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart exactly? In the Gospel of Matthew, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So the pure in heart get to see God. But what does it mean to be pure in heart exactly? How does one become pure in heart? Well, pure gold is nothing but gold. It has no impurities. Pure silver is nothing but silver. To have a pure heart is to have a heart that is focused, focused on God alone. After all, the most important commandment that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, it tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all our strength. A pure heart is focused on loving God above all else. When we focus our lives around loving God, we have a pure heart, and we're able to see God working in our midst. Unfortunately, today, there are many things that can distract us from loving God with all of our heart, aren't there? In our consumerist culture that we live in, we are told that we can have it our way, that life is about us and having our wants and our desires met. In this context, it's very easy for us in our selfish, sinful nature to focus our hearts and minds on ourselves and what we want rather than on God and what God wants for us. 
You know, even some churches have begun to succumb to this consumerist mindset by becoming so seeker-sensitive that they don't even put a cross in their worship space. They don't want to offend anyone with an ancient symbol of torture. But the Apostle Paul, when writing to the Corinthians, told them that while he was with them, he claimed to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The cross is in our places of worship because it's at the cross that our sins are ultimately atoned for and we are saved. But people don't like to talk about sin and death and torture today, do they? So many churches just talk about love. But isn't that the point of the cross? Isn't the cross all about love, God's love for us? For we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. As Jesus says in John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for us out of his great love for all of us so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could have a right relationship with God if we simply believe in Him. Yes, Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience to the law and to our Heavenly Father. And then He paid the price as the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we could be in a right relationship with God. But our culture... Our culture doesn't like to talk about sin or the cross, does it? I mean, sure, I'll see people wearing crosses all the time. I saw Madonna wearing a cross the other day, but I'm pretty sure she doesn't understand the message of the cross. I've seen Ashton Kutcher or Pamela Anderson wear a shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy, but I'm pretty sure they don't understand who Jesus is, and yet they prosper. They prosper greatly financially. In our text this morning... The psalmist knows that God is good to those who are pure in heart. But he can also see around him that the wicked are prospering even more than the righteous. We read, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. It really bothers the psalmist that the wicked are prospering. He feels that there is no real justice when the wicked prosper, and he finds himself struggling so much. After all, in verse 13, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. The psalmist. The psalmist has the older brother mentality when it comes to his relationship with God, doesn't he? You remember the older brother, right, from the parable of the prodigal son? The younger brother asks for his inheritance early and then goes off and wastes all that he's been given in loose living. When the younger brother finally comes humbly home to his father, his forgiving, loving, gracious father embraces him, hugs him, 
and tells the, his servant to go and get the best robe, put a ring on his finger and kill the fattened calf so we might celebrate my son who is lost. But when the older brother hears about how his father has treated the younger brother, he is irate and he, he, becomes, argue, he becomes upset and he argues, it's not fair. We can find the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verse 29. We find the specific words of that older brother when he confronts his father with this, what he feels is an act of injustice. Look, these many years I served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. In essence, the older brother is saying, how can you bless this younger brother when he has been so wicked and irresponsible? The older brother, he doesn't understand grace, does he? The older brother thinks he deserves grace. He thinks he can earn God's grace. But God's grace, by definition, is a gift Grace is God's unmerited favor towards us. Unmerited. We do not deserve God's favor when he gives it to us. We never deserve God's grace. We simply receive it as the free gift that it is. And because of his faithful work, the older brother feels that his father must bless him because he's worked so hard. But if the father blessed him because of his hard work, well, then it wouldn't be grace, would it? It would be payment. Many people in our church today, in the church in America today, can often think like the older brother if they're not careful. They can think that God owes them because they've been faithful. They think, well, I've been good. Certainly, I I need to be blessed better than so-and-so, right? God should bless me more than this person because I've been more faithful than they have. Like the older brother, the the psalmist thought God owed him. The psalmist had been faithful, and so he he wondered why he continued to struggle while he saw the wicked prosper. The psalmist became envious of the wicked and their success. He covets their success. His envy actually made him angry. It's not until the psalmist enters into the sanctuary of God in verse 17 that his envy finally turns to peace. In the sanctuary of the Lord, the psalmist is reminded of God's constant presence. And he's reminded that in God, he has all that he really needs. Listen again to these words, verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist needed to go into the sanctuary to worship God, to be reminded that God is all that he, that he needs and all that we need as well. As you know, worship helps recenter our hearts and minds on God. As we turn our hearts and minds towards God in worship, we're reminded of God's grace and God's love, which is what we all need ultimately. The next time we find ourselves becoming envious of others, we need to turn our hearts towards the worship of God. As we worship God in our homes or in our hearts or here on Sunday mornings, we're reminded again that God's grace is sufficient for us. That all that we ultimately need is found in God. As the psalmist said, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
When we take a moment to think about God's grace, we realize that we don't really need all the temporal things that our world chases after. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, that Hugh read to us just a moment ago, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. When we die, we're not taking any of this stuff with us. When I die, nothing in my closet is going with me except perhaps the suit they bury me in. Nothing in my garage is coming with me. My house stays here. Everything we ultimately own is temporal. It will rust, break down, and be destroyed. But when we focus our hearts and minds on God and His kingdom, then we find ourselves making eternal investments where moth and rust will not destroy. As Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I don't know about you, but when I invest in the kingdom of God, I know that lives are changed for eternity, and my heart is drawn closer to God. I found that giving a full tithe to God has helped me grow in my relationship with God as I I see God faithfully multiply what I give to minister to so many more. I also grow in my faith as I trust God to provide for me in the future, as I seek to give first fruits to God in tithing to Him. If we want to have a pure heart and see God moving in our lives, then we can't worship anything other than God. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If we serve money rather than God, it will be very easy for us to become envious of others. And we will find that ultimately we're never satisfied. When we serve God first, we don't really care what other people have. We realize because we know that only God can truly satisfy. And so with the psalmist, we can say that there's nothing on this earth that I desire besides you, O God. Worship helps remind us of that reality, that only God can truly satisfy. Now notice that the psalmist didn't go into the sanctuary of the Lord by himself. As the psalmist is wrestling with going the way of the wicked, he says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, meaning I had uh, given up on the way of the Lord. I would have betrayed the generations of your children. What ultimately keeps the psalmist from pursuing the way of the wicked is the fact that he's a part of the community of faith, the people of Israel. As a child of Israel, he knows he cannot abandon God's ways or he will betray the generation of God's children. It is the community of faith that ultimately keeps him accountable. Now, as we head into this Holy Week, who do we know who needs to be with us in the worship of Almighty God so they might experience God's grace and anew this next, this upcoming Holy Week? The final verse of Psalm 73, the psalmist writes that it is good. It is good for me to be near God. I have made the Lord the God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. When was the last time we told others about the good works of the Lord that we see Him doing here 
at First Presbyterian Church? Did you tell anyone about what God did last Sunday during our time of prayer and healing? I know I did. Two young boys came to Christ at the 11 o'clock hour. It was amazing. Many people were prayed for, anointed with oil, and, and one woman actually had her, her uh, uh, back pain uh, relieved through those prayers of healing. Yes, God did an amazing work in our church. And when we experience God's love and grace here in this place, He expects us to share that with others so they too might join us in the future. Business Week recently ran an article explaining that despite marketers' ability to capture our attention through numerous forms of media, now like the internet and television and radio and phone, print, etc., without question, still the best form of advertising today is word-of-mouth advertising. As best-selling business writer Kenneth Blanchard writes, the best thing a company can do is make their customers raving fans of their products and services. A raving fan is someone who loves the products and, uh, of a, uh, loves the products and customer service of a company so much that he actually invites others to join them to experience for themselves. I imagine for those of us who have ever been to the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs, that wonderful hotel and resort, went there because people told us about it, not because we simply read about it. Universal Studios actually has a sneak peek movie club where you can watch movies for free before they come out. Universal Studios does this because they know that if you like their movie, you will be the best form of advertising they could hope for as you tell your friends to go and and go see this movie I just saw. Starting next Sunday. Starting next Sunday, we have a great opportunity to invite a friend to experience something much greater than any movie could provide. We have the opportunity to invite them to experience the very real presence of God as we gather together in Christ's name where he promises he'll be there with us. Yes, as we gather for worship next Sunday at Palm Sunday and Holy Week begins, then we'll have Monday, Thursday, then we'll have a Good Friday at 8 o'clock, and then we'll have four services on Easter, 8.30, uh, 9.05, 11, and 11.05. What a great opportunity we have to invite a friend or a family member to experience God's grace and presence here in worship. If we want to avoid the sin of coveting, if we want to avoid the sin of envy, we need to practice the spiritual discipline of worship. For in worship, our hearts and minds are focused on God, and we are reminded again that in God we have all that we ultimately need. Who do we know? Who do we know that needs to be reminded of that reality? Who do we know that we need to invite to join us in one of our Holy Week celebrations so they might experience God's presence here in this place, so they might be reminded that in God they have all that they ultimately need? Yes, as we experience God's grace and love and His presence in the midst of worship, we're reminded again, as the psalmist says, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And we are moved, as the psalmist says, to tell others, of God's good work. May we all, having experienced God's presence today, take what we know and tell others to come and join us and experience His presence so they might realize and be reminded that God is all we ultimately need. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you're a God who has made yourself known to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God who is with us. When two or more are gathered together in your name, you promise to be there. 
So, Lord, we thank you for your presence with us now. And as we prepare to come to this table, I pray that you continue to prepare our hearts to experience your grace, to experience a physical reminder of your love, to be nourished by your grace and love again. Oh, God, we thank you, Lord, for your love. We pray that you would open our eyes to see who we might invite, whether it be from our places of work or our neighborhood or whatever social circle we might be in or from our schools, who we might invite to join us in our Holy Week celebration. So they might experience your presence, they might experience your grace, and they might be reminded, as we are, that in you, O Lord, we have all that we ultimately need. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.